0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arican. Today, I'm joined by Tessa Farmer, Associate Professor at the University of Virginia in the Anthropology Department and a Program in Global Studies, where she directs the Global Studies Middle East and South Asia track. We'll be talking about her book, well-Connected, Everyday Water Practices in Cairo, published recently by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you very much, Tessa, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you conceived of this book? Um,
1: <clears throat> so... Thank you for that invitation. Uh, You know, I I consider myself sort of um, an environmental anthropologist and an urban anthropologist and... um, I had the privilege of being part of um, one of the DPDF, uh, the Dissertation Proposal fe- uh, Development Fellowships, with the SSRC. At uh, the very first year they ran it, actually, um, Steve Caton and Ben Orlov ran one on water, and so I was really lucky in being part of that community. And got exposure to, um, a a really sort of rich, uh, multidisciplinary way of engaging with, um, with water. And, um, and I was really compelled by water because it is, as they, as they say, a a total social fact, as, um, as Ben and Steve say, it's like a total social fact. When you're looking at water, it's the prism through which you see, all sorts of things, all sorts of other things become visible through that. And so um, I I was really interested in the beginning in doing research um, in one of the oases in Egypt, but that didn't work out, which is fine. So then I started to look for uh, a location to do research on urban water issues and I have a friend in the Ministry of Antiquities there, and he said, oh, if you're interested in urban water issues, you really need to look at this neighborhood, is because the water, the sewage from that area was going down the limestone hill and creating problems for the archaeological remains in the city of Fustat, which was founded by the Fatimids, and so it's an important location. And so he said, you know, if you if you want to... If you want to know about water in Cairo, then thinking about what's going on as water moves in all sorts of uh, unintended and undesired ways would be a really good point of departure. So um, that's what brought me to that location to do research. Um, And I got really lucky when I went. I had intended to do work on potable water. um, But when I arrived, I discovered that they were implementing a state funded Wastewater system, um, and because the area itself doesn't sort of officially exist, it's spread across four different administrative domains in the government. Um, like there was no newspaper article that announced that that this location was getting um, uh, wastewater systems, and so when I arrived. It it was an unanticipated situation. And, you know, that's one of the lovely things about ethnography, right, is serendipity. And so I had the opportunity then to look at the intersection of potable water and wastewater um, systems in the context of um, a real shift in the regimes from these um, septic tank systems that people had been operating on for a few decades to a piped sewage network.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing your path to this work. And, you know, in my reading of this book, if Steve Caton and Ben Orlov are showing us water as a total fact, you are showing us how water comes to matter in urban life. Uh, And, you know, you do so through both your term, Well Connected, and throughout the book. So I'm curious about what connection and being well connected capture about water in urban life. And what drew you to connection? As a main analytic for this book, um,
1: you know, I think connection came to me as an analytic, um, as a as a sort of attempt to make sense of the multiplicity of systems uh, that go into making water possible. Right, so it's not just water in general. It's like people need the right amount of water. They need the uh, acceptable quality of water. They need it at the right times. And so, um, All sorts of systems go into that, ethical systems, uh, social systems, material systems, and each one of those systems itself is multiple, right? There are multiple administrative um, paradigms. There are multiple ethical paradigms that matter. There are multiple sort of material systems that go into that. And so thinking about connection was a way to try to capture the complexity of things that mattered in making water appear or not in a particular time and place. Um, And so, for example, in the book, I talk about thresholds, like the thresholds of homes as these material locations that um, where you have the infrastructure that's inside the home that is often sort of like... um, Self-built, right, um, and distributes water to the kitchen and the bathrooms, and it intersects with the systems in in the in the case we were seeing the transformation. It intersects with those systems that the state was implementing, and so it was this location, materially, where you saw sort of two very different um, infrastructural regimes. <laughs> intersecting. And it's also a place where a lot of social work happens um, and social work that matters for making water possible and making the disappearance of sewage possible. And so it was this node of connection where you saw um, a variety of of systems in their many manifestations and the labor that people put in to make it possible for things to function. So connecting and trying to connect well, that ever present ongoing process of trying to make it function um, was a a real sort of um, object of of interest, like uh, fascination in seeing the process of how people got that to work.
0: Yeah, and I really appreciate how, you know, in some ways in the book, this attunement to connection also brings you to very salient critiques about the state. So, you know, whenever I read the book, in anthropology in particular, I often find myself frustrated with you know, those that take the state as the ultimate provider for its subjects and, you know, often like making connections can come across as a last resort. Um, And, you know, your book is such a fresh counterpoint. So I was curious about the critique you develop of statism and what about life in Izbet Hayrallah brought you to this critique? That's such an interesting question. I, I um,
1: You know, I think it's been interesting to watch over the last 20 years as the kind of theoretical continuity of the state has dissipated and as we started to recognize that it's process, not object, that there are... Um, you know, that there's not the vertical accomplishment that we had imagined, that there's, um, you know, there are all sorts of entities that are not, quote unquote, state entities that have state like effects, like all of these things, I think, have been really important important interventions in the way that we have thought about governance structures. Um, and, you know, the anthropology um, uh, of infrastructure as well has, I think, shifted the scale of analysis away from sort of nation state towards the municipal. So I think all of those things have been really important. But as the conceptual unity of the state has dissipated, it seems to then just have become pervasive. And so everything becomes the state. And the way that we talk about what's going on with water seems to have taken this turn where everything is state-society relations. And I think it's important to attend to the sort of citizenship uh, impact of the way that different uh, utilities are managed. Um, and experienced, but it it doesn't quite cover all of the different things that people do in order to access water. Um this the state, you know, is is one realm of human organization to accomplish and um and and organize things. But there are other ways in which people do that labor. And I think it, um, I think it was actually looking from the ethnography at the literature and just feeling like it didn't describe that, that, um, that, that brought that to mind. Um, and also I think this, this, you know, we, um, within the discipline, I think we have this sort of love hate relationship with the state. Right? like We're like, we are very attentive to the ways in which it, um, can be so coercive and you know pedagogical and um, and uh, and yet we have this I think implicit um, expectation that what we want is for the state to state better we want it to serve itself better we want better sleep. Function, and that's always seemed a little bit contradictory to me, um, because we we spent a lot of time thinking about the extent to which there are embedded problems with the state itself, um, or with state-like entities, with the the governance structures. So um, it was interesting just to to think from the perspective of how people managed in the everyday. Yes, the state is and governance infrastructures at different scales are so important for laying the conditions of possibility, but they're not the only game in town.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a wonderful observation. And what I really like about your approach is while you're making that important critique, you're also not losing sight of how connection can be really messy, right? And in the book, in Sarah's story, for example, we see how sewing connection brings conflicts with it. So can you tell us more about the frictions that emerge by sewing connections? It's
1: it it was definitely one of the really compelling aspects of the ethnographic work is to watch the labor that went into finding connection, to locating where and when it was possible to connect with people, but then also recognizing that connection is double-edged. Um and I think that there are different layers to this. So um you know, within the community, there is, you know, expectations of mutuality and, um, and solidarity and, and relationality. And those things are all fundamentally necessary for people to uh, survive. But there's a lot of expectation and less resources, um, and so um, and fewer resources to put through those webs, and so people are put in a situation where there are there can be more demands than there is capacity to respond, and um, and so. I think that there is a kind of, of heaviness to this possibility that people have to manage, and I think there's also a kind of uncertainty about the direction from which danger will come. There's a lot of there's a process of creating deliberate uncertainty about you know tenure in this space, um, and so people have a kind of anxiety about the potential for um, being displaced and um, and having their resources be sort of eaten up by elsewhere. And so the the process is to try to connect with others, but also to be very careful about the extent to which what you have is visible, because you're never quite sure where danger is going to come from, I think. and um, And I think that's as people relate to each other, and I think it's also as people relate to governing institutions. There was a lot of uncertainty about what becoming official end users of municipal infrastructure systems would mean for them because it's an informal community, because they didn't have legal land tenure. There was this kind of Faustian bargain where they'll get recognition from the state by proving a history of utility payments. But the state wanted to know how many people live there. What does the house look like? What kinds of informal businesses do you guys have? And that kind of information made people feel very, vulnerable, because it wasn't quite clear what was going to happen with that information. So I think that um, connection is is complex in that way it is about making things possible but not all possible things are positive things
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and another thing you show us is that connection is sensory so in esba resident senses get trained over time to gauge the water quality and the quality of their connection so this made me curious about whether you see sensing connection as a form of knowledge making about water urban life. Absolutely. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, um, the, the, the people in, in is have had to develop these processes to make sense of their, um, of the, their material world, right? So there are long-term processes of things like understanding, you know, the women had a sense of where the the pipes connected in their neighborhood from their experience of when the water is cut, how far away from their house they have to go before they can find somebody who has it. And, um, and there was a, uh, a sort of social process of knowing, but also an embodied process of knowing, especially around water quality. So um, there was a, you know, fairly common occurrence of having sewage admixture in the potable water. And so scenting that and then figuring out when it had gone, uh, away enough for the water to be safe. Um, so turning on the tap, letting it run, when is it become safe again? Um, conversely there were also times you know as is the case for the potable water system writ large there are times when there's too much chlorination and that was also a problem and so people had developed a kind of sense of um, water assessment right Um, an embodied water assessment and I think that had to do with smell and taste, but also rhythm and time, Um, how long something took um, and when you could expect good. Um, And so I think that there's sort of that level of of sensory um, training. And I think there's also a sense in which water becomes a piece of how you know your home So like a a flavor that that is recognizable as the flavor of home and and that's part of a sort of process of, of attachment to place. And so it's not like binary good water, bad water, but water that has the qualities of home, which can be good and they can also contain harm, but still mean something about your attachment to that place.
0: Absolutely. And at this point, I want to shift gears a little bit and speak a little bit about how you did this research, right? Um, Across the book... Gender comes across as a crucial part of your fieldwork and the connections you forged in the neighborhood. So I'd love to learn more about the possible methodological repercussions of well-connected. Do you consider connecting well and perhaps gendered ways of connecting well as part of your methodology?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's... it's, um... At a number of levels. So it, it talk a little bit in the book about the extent to which my connections with people um, were, um, were part of how things became possible, right? So I, for example, somebody that you meet in the book, asthma. I had met her when I was lost in the neighborhood. And um and I was trying to find my way to the main road. And I came across uh, this woman sitting on her front uh, doorstep. And she was in this very narrow alley. And the alley was essentially just covered in sewage. And she was having a cup of tea. And it was a really sort of a striking experience. And when I talked to her, she wanted me to understand what was going there. And she wanted to share that she wanted people beyond the neighborhood to hear about the kinds of talents that that they were having. And at the end of the conversation, she insisted, come back. You need to come back. You must come back. And so I did a few times come back to her home and knock on the door. And, um, and she wasn't home, but her neighbors let her know. But over time, the sort of just the showing upness again, the the turning upness again, um, built a set of, of, uh, built a relationship, built a connection with her. And so, um, So then I became a part as much as possible of her social network. Um, You know, she introduced me to her best friend who introduced me to a good neighbor, you know, good neighbor friend who then introduced me to their sister-in-law. And so it builds out as a a social network. And um, I did the best that I could to be. A good member of those communities to be reciprocal, but also then I think often experience some of the same things that they were experiencing. Uncertainty about the extent to which information would be a problem, um, you know, concern about how to manage uh, competing demands, worry about um, what relations w- with one group of people meant for the relationship with other groups of people. And so it was very much, uh, I think, a process of myself uh, doing my best to be well connected in this community, and um, and struggling mightily <laughs> with that project, and um, and um, recognizing that, um, you know, that obviously given my positionality. I was a particular kind of node in that set of relations, but that it was more broadly about um, learning how to cultivate uh, relations through that kind of fatic labor, through that labor of care and concern. And it was often around domestic things. And that's what I was interested in. I was in, interested in the domestic use of water, like doing laundry doing dishes going shopping cooking those were the things that we did together and so much of it was just about like the pleasure of spending time with others doing things um that that built the relations that trained me and taught me in mm-hmm. that
0: space yeah um so it was a process of you no know, knowledge making for you as well <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, something I also appreciated in the book is that, you know, you address directly how you chose not to forge connections. And, you know, you say you purposefully stayed away from institutional connections to ESBA, even at times when residents wished you to be a conduit to NGO systems. So what were the ethical and political stakes of steering away from these kinds of connections for you? it
1: was a decision that i made before arriving at the field and i think you know i understand the impulse to go in through that kind of organized entity because it makes a big difference in you know low, in, in in building your first set of connections and i think it's also often about trying not to do such extractive work about finding ways to um to be reciprocal with the communities that we work with, and and that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think a downfall of the choice that I made was that I didn't have very many uh, organized opportunities for reciprocity in the context of my original research project. And that's something I'm trying to address in my in my new project. But um, but when I went in, I knew that people were going to. Um, you know, if I went in through an organization like that, people were going to see me at some level as a representative of that organization. And that was not something I wanted. I was really interested in the day to day, the everyday sort of experience that people had. And, um, I knew I I wanted to have the capacity to enter into those spaces without the kind of, um, introduction to there or the kinds of obligations that I would then have to that community partner, to that organization. Um, and I think it it could be very easy to fall into a situation where what you end up doing is an institutional or organizational ethnography. Um, of that entity that you walked in through um, and, you know, how they're trying to train people to do particular things, how they approach the issue of water and knowledge. And that's interesting, but not what I wanted to focus on. And so choosing to go in and try to build connections, I think it was awkward <laughs> and um, and challenging, but ultimately I think for me allowed me maybe to a greater extent than I might otherwise have to be able to recognize the limits of the state paradigm, right? The governance paradigm to see all of the other everyday um, systems that people develop to make water possible for themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing I appreciated about your approach was your careful handling of the narratives around ISBA as a sacrifice zone. In the book, you tell us stereotypes aren't entirely inaccurate, but they're incomplete. How did you grapple with the incomplete stereotypes around this as you represented the neighborhood and as you wrote about it? (laughs) You know, um,
1: the location itself had a certain kind of um, discussion about it, you know, often from people in Egypt with this idea that it was a place of particular kinds of dangers around, um, you know, illegality, drug running, uh, gun running, prostitution. And, um, you know, I occasionally ran across various sort of aspects of that uh, and quickly moved away. Um, But it was sort of one Sort of there, there those things were happening there, but they were certainly not the only things happening there. In a lot of ways, it was a sort of average working class neighborhood where people had been labeled as problems to, uh, you know, a greater extent than people themselves. Um, you know, their investment in. Uh, extra legal systems, right? So their lack of tenure and the work that they had had to do to try to maintain their presence in space had given them, in and of itself, a kind of reputation of um, like toughness and illegality, um, which is really just about their insistence that they also had the right to be there, and um, and so people from outside had this kind of narrative. And I think I talk about it a little bit in the book, how often I encountered this gesture where people would like take their thumb and run it from behind their ear down across the throat with this sort of narrative that, or this idea that, that people there were going to, to kill me. And there's, there is this kind of idea that uh, people there are marked by knife fights. So you'd see people with knife fights and that's not entirely untrue, but certainly was not the the, the standard. It was not the norm. Um, uh, and even funnily enough, like I was talking with a graduate student in the United States who is from Egypt and he did the same thing when he heard where I had done my research. So it was a kind of pervasive attitude that people had about it, but I think um, didn't reflect the community's own experience of of their persistence in that space people saw themselves as you know doing their best to make life possible and they had a sense of like hopefulness like like Leery but hopeful about the future. They knew that there were all sorts of folks and entities that did not want them to be there, that were very interested in their departure. Um, And they, you know, many of them had experienced that process of um, attempts to evict them, but they'd been able to endure in that space. They had a track record of being in that space, of being able to build um, longevity there. And so it was never fixed. It was never certain. It was never a closed issue. But people were hopeful that they could build towards a future. And so that's what I tried to reflect in the book was their own sense of that space as um, as as home, as a place that had the potential for a long term, but that also had embedded in it uh, this history of, you know, deliberate uncertainty.
0: Mm, yeah, I think that... You know, the care you put into doing that really comes across. And as someone who works in a neighborhood in Istanbul that circulates in similar ways, I found that really generative. So thanks for doing that work. And... (laughs) You know, I was also very curious about the book's reception. So I know that you've done a couple of book talks, uh, including at Boston University, where I'm currently based. And, you know, as the book itself um, sort of travels in this way, I'm curious if you, you know, learned anything new or if there's anything that struck you uh, in terms of how, um, in terms of the responses you get in these book talks? I mean I think that there you know there
1: when I started doing research in 2009 in isba there were there was some material on water but certainly not what there has has come out over the last you know 10 to 15 years and so it's a it's a well populated uh research area in a way that it hadn't been when I began the process and so I think you know, there's an there's a set of of, of questions and expectations about um, about utilities about water that's uh, well trodden, um, and so I think I think what has um, what it has seemed to me to be the sort of area of key interest is the moving away from the paradigm of state society relations and sort of this curiosity of then so then what what do we do with understanding or thinking about the state? Like, how do we think about, um, how do we think about water provisioning outside of the paradigm of that, or at least not exclusively within that paradigm? And I don't know that I have an answer. <laughs> I mean, I think it's an interesting set of questions. Um, but uh, I mean, I guess my principal res- response would be that, um, you know, attentive to the questions of sociality, which are in this case about water, but that's just one sort of prism, right? Like, Well-connected is about so much more than the capacity to connect to water. It's about all sorts of things. And so, um, you know, people have been interested in what that means for other domains of life. They've been interested in thinking about, um, you know, in thinking about the future of cities um, and, and city water. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your
0: question. I don't know if I'm
1: answering your question, but I think that's, that's where I have noticed the sort of the, the center of the questions to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love, you know, answering with more questions. It shows how your book is so generative and creating more sort of debates uh, around these issues and what comes after the state or Yeah, or after certain kinds of governance. Um, And with that, I'm asking my last question. So what's next for you? What comes after this book for you? What are you thinking about, writing about, researching, or teaching right now?
1: Thank you. I am actually doing two projects in parallel. Um, right now. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know that that's the best move, but it is. <laughs> um, so the first one came directly out of the first book project, right? So I had done research on Sibyl's, these charitable water fountains as part of the first book um, project or the first set of research, and I thought for the first book I would go and do a summer of research to fill that out to be its own chapter. So in 2018, I went back to Cairo. And I spent two and a half, three months there and, uh, as I was doing the research, I was like, this is not a chapter. This is its own book. There's so much to say about these really sort of beautifully ethnographic objects. They're these very prosaic material things that when you pay attention to them unfold so much about how people think about neighborliness and kindness, how they think about the afterlife, how they mourn for departed loved ones. And so um, the second research project on Sabeel's is Underway, and you know, um, it's it's much easier to understand what it takes to have a book once you've already done one. So uh, it was much easier to sit down and sort of lay out what I think the second book could look like um, based on the Sibyl project. Um, and you know, I think in 2018 when I went back, they had just like massively proliferated. There were so many more than there had been even a few years before that. And when I talked to people about why that was, a lot of it was about uh, pedestrian thermal comfort or discomfort rather. Um, So many people referenced their own sensorial, um, experience of, of, moving through the city and being thirsty and, and being uncomfortable and responding to that by elaborating and building on this tradition of, of gifting water in the street. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to me because, you know, there's the climate security discourse, which is so worried about livable cities, right? Like, can people survive in these spaces? Is it still going to be viable in the future for people to be in these, you know, major metropolitan areas that are currently very densely packed, especially because the MENA region is experiencing, um, you know, in in faster, you know, in ways that are faster than in other um, regions in the world, they're experiencing the impact of climate change. So increased heat, drought, um, you know, a greater number of days of extreme heat. Um, And so, um, you know, SABILs are one way in which people are Building for themselves viable urban space, um, and they're doing it, you know, building on this tradition and, um, and and sort of responding to the complexity of of life on the street of, um, you know, the thermal human bioclimate, the the your sort of like the scale of 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 the body um, and and issues of heat. And um, so paying attention to appeals, I think, can tell us about the, the space and placemaking practices that people are participating in to make a viable future for themselves in, um, in an area that is, you know, undergoing and uh, anticipated to undergo to even greater extent in the future, the impacts of climate change. So that's, that's the project that, that came out of, of book one. Um, and then the second project is I'm working with a community group um, in a neighborhood that's very close to Isbeth Kharla on gray water reuse, because like um, when I was first introduced to this neighborhood, where the sewage was going down and creating problems for the archaeological remains in a nearby neighborhood it's the potable water systems and the that are just so leaky that they're creating real problems for these historic buildings and so they have pumped out water and created a park for Uh, using that, but there's still a ton of gray water and it's possible to reuse that. So their question is, how do we think about this not as a problem to be gotten rid of, but as a resource for rebuilding Community for doing urban agriculture, for um, cooling, for shading, um, and so uh, they have been involved in this in this project for a decade. And they were looking for an ethnographer, and you know, we're never like the doctor on the plane. <laughs> <And> it <right laughs> was this moment where somebody was looking for the skill set that I brought, which felt fabulous um, and continues to feel fabulous. And so I've been working with this community group um, to. To do ethnography and to think about how to transform, uh, you know, a liability into uh, a valuable asset, into possibilities for people. And I think, you know, as we have seen, as in the discussion in the discipline writ large, uh, you know, over the last in an intensive way over the last few years there's a question about how to do ethnography ethically. And I think that community directed research is one uh, avenue to do that. So putting the the tools to use uh, to answer questions that um, will have a more direct impact, a more immediate impact, and the questions themselves are directed by community members to answer, you know, uh, to, to address issues that they want to address. I think that that Piece of that story is really compelling to me. So when I go to Cairo in July and August, I'll be working with that community partner in thinking about how to do ethnography to help with the gray water reuse project. So the community partner is Magaura, the Built Environment Collective, um, and they do historic preservation in the, um, you know, in different locations, but primarily um, I'll be working with them in the area of El Khalifa
0: yeah these all sound extremely you know interesting and important and hopefully when these works are done we'll have you back on the podcast um but for now thank you very much tessa for joining us and for your insights thank you very much elise it was a real pleasure to have this conversation with you you. (laughs) the pleasure is all mine (laughs) This is your host Aliza Arcan. This discussion of well-connected everyday water practices in Cairo published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2023 is brought to you by the New Books Network in Anthropology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>